Welcome to Kick Back with Chris, the martial arts podcast. Brought to you by www.mintmaster.com. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kickback with Chris, the Martial Arts Podcast. Today, finally, I'm supposed to have done this last Friday, but anyway, as I said in the post for those that saw it, Friday sort of came and went, and now it's Monday. Anyway, I'm recording today one of my much-loved Q&A sessions. I love doing these, where you guys send me in questions, because um, I know that I'm... The cool thing about doing this is that I know I'm talking about stuff that people are interested in because they've asked the question. That or they're just trying to start an internet argument, one or the other. Either way, it's all good. Um, but I've got a list, you can really hear, I've got a list of paper, a list of paper, a pile of paper with a big list of questions on, um, some of which I printed out a couple of weeks ago. So chances are I've forgotten what a lot of them are because I've not read through them again. Uh, I am going to filter them as I go along because some of them aren't. Some of them are a bit borderline as to whether they're suitable for recording, for going on record, so to speak. And what I'll also do with some of them is just modify modify the questions a little bit because, it's, you know, as you, you type things out and you hit return and um, they, they probably made sense in your head when you were typing them, but they don't always make as much sense when you read them back out aloud. So I'll do a little bit of creative editing with some of them. It won't it won't change the context of the question, but you know, just makes it easier to understand, I think. Um oh, little caveat as well. I am actually recording at home today. So if it sounds a little bit different or you hear a random washing machine or tumble dryer in the background, that's why. I meant to do this on Friday. Friday came and went. So I'm doing it today. But I've I've got a busy day, so I've actually got to record this one from home. So um let's start off. Right, first question. What's your favourite grading memory slash story? Um, what's my favourite grading memory? Now, I'm going to be honest here. I don't have a favourite memory. I just have some memories. Uh, it's been... When did I last do a grading? 2012 was the last time I did a grading. It was my fourth down. Um, I've spoken about this before, about... Dan Gradins and my thoughts and for me personally anyway and um, so that's that's the last grading memory that I have um, and that was yeah that was a that was a tough one I um, look the thing is the different people have different approaches to the way that they do their Dan Gradins um, I'll cut to the point some just get given them um, some people do them like a time served things so they sort of you know do their thing and then get another stripe every so often and I'm not, I'm not judging I'm just saying it as it is this is uh, different people have different approaches some have you know full blown assessment processes some go abroad and do them you know different look there's no right wrong way everyone's got their own opinion on this one I liked to do something a little bit different with mine and I also like to keep them within uh, a group of people connected to my original instructors who actually don't teach anymore so you know I have to get a little bit creative on that front but anyway cut to the story so for my last grading what I actually did to because I was you know I was still teaching six days a week so it was a little bit tricky to find time to to commit to testing so what I did was uh, for my physical elements I actually did 
a sponsored sparring event. So I figured I may as well raise some money for charity as well at the same time. And from memory, what I think is I sparred, I think it was 60 people back to back, two minutes around, or three minutes if they raised over a certain amount. I think that's what I did from memory. Um, there is a video out there somewhere. Um, so I did that for my physical, and that was awful. <laughs> it was, actually wasn't the first one I'd done. I'd done them before, but uh, I figured if I'm going to do a physical element anyway, I may as well raise some money for charity at the same time. Um, and I remember being absolutely broken after that because the, the kids all went for my knees, and <laughs> the, which probably explains the state of my knees now, to be honest. Um, but all the adults, because there was people watching... They all wanted to get their shot in. They all wanted their moment in front of everybody, and um, yeah, that that, <laughs> that I remember. By the end of it, the the, the last person that went, the the person who went last was the person who raised the most. Um, and I seem to remember them actually being quite handy as well, and uh, they they got to just hit me for the the entire time, and I wasn't allowed to hit them back. That was the deal. And I remember when I saw who it was, it was one of our senior grades, one of our black belts, and I was like, oh no, it had to be him, didn't it? Um, and I'm, I remember saying to him, don't go don't go easy on me, because everybody's waited for this last round to see you bash the crap out of me. And if you go easy, they're going to, you know, <laughs> there's got to be riots. So, you know, you've got to go for it. And he did. And I was all sorts of colours of white and you know pasty white and green and black by the end of it where he'd bash me all over um so that that's a grading memory whether that's a favorite or not i don't know and then what i did the i think it was i'm trying to think how it would have been a week or two afterwards we back then i used to do um belt presentations like so the the students would do their gradings and then on a sunday afternoon we'd get all the families and everybody and we'd do all the belt presentations we don't do that anymore but back then we used to do it so what I did was, um, I did a series of forms, I did a free form, I did like a self-defense demo and a one-step demo and a board-breaking demo, um, stuff like that. And all the parents and students there, so they, you know, it put me under a little bit of pressure and it, and it, got, to, it got them to see me doing stuff as well. Um, other than that, I, obviously I remember my black belt test, that was back in 1999. I remember it being really hard, as it should be. I remember us doing loads of press-ups and not being able to move my arms properly for several days afterwards. Um, I remember coming out of it, because we didn't get the results, so we came out of the grading and then we went home for a little bit and then there was like an evening presentation. And I remember it was weird because I knew I knew that I'd done my best and I felt that I'd done okay. Um, but yeah, I just didn't know. I actually stuffed up a pattern. I remember anybody who does um, ITF-based Taekwondo or has done in the past. A uh, form called Yulgok. I actually completely stuffed it up, like, big time. Um, what happened was a senior grade in front of me. I had to stop for them. And when I went to start again, I forgot which way I was meant to turn next. And I definitely turned the wrong way. Nobody said anything. And I remember... A couple of weeks later, asking one of the people that was on the panel, do you know, I've got my I've got my belt now and all that, but just you know, did you notice I went the wrong way? <laughs> I went the wrong way on my form at the end. They're like, no, no, not at all. And I was like, I don't know if they were just being nice or whether they genuinely didn't notice. But I, I left it a couple of weeks. I thought they can't take it off me now, surely. 
Um, and apart from that, the only other memory I have from any gradings was one that I would have done in, I want to say, 89, maybe 1990 at a push. And I think it was a grade into yellow belt. And it was it was in Balby in Doncaster. And I remember it was Grandmaster Tony Quigley was doing the grading. Because I couldn't I could never understand a word the guy was saying, I remember. <laughs> and um it terrified us doing a board breaking from behind the table once as well. I must have I must have stuffed up whatever pattern I was doing at the time, so I can't remember the names of them now. I must have stuffed up my form because he got me to stand up and do it again. You know, a terrified nine-year-old. He got me to do it again in front of everybody. And I remember giving it absolutely everything. Um, but I must have made a mistake. That must have been what it was. Or my blocks were wrong. or I don't know. But I, I, that's the only the memory that, that I remember. Okay. Next question. God, that was a bit of a waffle, wasn't it? Uh, next question. I'll try and keep them a bit shorter now. Next question is, should we still use... Um, original language uh, for technique names. So by that, I'm guessing it's um, you know the the origin of the arts. Now, whoosh, it's a contentious one. This one. Um, I've spoken about this before on the podcast, and again, I'm not saying my point of view is right. That I don't think there is one right answer for this, and I think everybody's answers are probably justified in some form or another. Should we still use? Should we collectively? I think the answer to that is, it's a bit of a dodging one, I suppose, but I think it depends on your position on this, your stance on this, your situation, and that of your students. By that, I mean what sort of classes you teach. You know, if you're teaching a fully inclusive class, which we really all should be, to to be honest, but let's say you're teaching a class that is working around um, children or adults with learning difficulties or additional needs. Do you want to be complicating the situation further by teaching in Korean or Japanese or Chinese or whatever? I don't think so, probably. Um, Now, personally, myself, I don't teach in Korean. Um, I still remember it from when I was a kid. But the reason that I don't teach it is because of my experiences as as a child in class. Because I grew up in a town called Balby in Doncaster, which has... I've lost a lot of, I think anyway, I've lost a lot of my accent. It it switches on and off, much to my wife's dismay when I'm around people from where I grew up. Um, Or when I shout, oddly enough. I don't know what what that's all about. But anyway, um, I remember going to class and we did all of our classes in Korean with a bit of a Bulby accent, a bit of a Doncaster accent. Um, And then we would have visiting instructors would come from Barnsley and and their Korean had a slight Barnsley twang to it and then we'd have grading instructors would come over and and there you see what I'm saying so it was always I remember our instructor having to stand on the side and and almost translate for us because we'd be looking going what's he saying um and I, I understand the idea in that if you learn it in the original language it's beneficial for if you're traveling around and and all this but are most of our students actually going to do that? I don't think so. I mean, if you're if you're in a school where 
you as an instructor do that and you create opportunities for your students to do that, then I suppose fair enough. But for me, with my school, it's not something that I do or that, you know, I'm not saying that my students can't do that, but, you know, I remember being really confused by it all. I remember being stressed in my gradings. You know, I remember really focusing on my technique and trying to get everything perfect and then stressing about whether I was saying the right word and and thinking, this does not have bear any change to the effectiveness of the technique, whether I'm saying it right in Korean. So I don't teach in the language. Some people say that's breaking from tradition, but I, I really don't think it is because people teaching Taekwondo in Korea don't teach it in Korean because it's tradition. They teach it in Korean because it's their language. It's not a an ele- a traditional element of the arts teaching it in its original language. It's it's just because that's what they speak there. It's you see what I'm saying. Um, so look again to each their own. If you if you do great. If you don't great. It does, I, you know. I think it's what you're teaching and how you're teaching it that's more important than what language you use. Um, all right, next one. Uh, seminal moments and turning points in a martial artist's life. Crikey. Could do an old podcast on that one. All right, so I'm going to stick to the key moments, I would say. Uh, and I, and you could right, you can all sit there and pick this apart depending on what you teach um, and what you think. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm just going to pick some generalized ones. When The day you start, day one, when you take that step through the door, onto the mats um, is probably the single most important moment I would say um, taking the decision being brave enough to, to take that step and join the class providing that you stay with it is a huge turning point you know it's a massive massive moment in any martial artist's training life career you know whatever it is that you go on to do you know, if I'd have not taken that first step, then I wouldn't be sitting here recording this podcast. I wouldn't have had my full-time school for over 20 years. I, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to, to travel all over the world um, with with my work if it wasn't for that first step through those doors back in 1980-something, 88, 87, 88. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be doing this now. The first time, if your art has any sparring, the first time you put pads on, and get stuck into some sparring, I think, is is a, is a moment as well. Um, if you're younger, it's that moment where you get hit and you realise, this isn't as bad as I set it up for in my head. Um, that is an important stepping stone, I personally think, anyway. you know, um, or, or it terrifies you and it forces you to face it. Or it has the opposite effect and it pushes you away, which is, you know... Equally is an important moment. Um, aside from that, obviously I'm, I, I could say black belt training if you, if that is, a, is something that's in your system. But I would also say your first encounter in a real self-defense situation where you get to validate or even question what it is that you've learned on the mats, which might force you to focus more on your training. It might push you to seek alternative answers to, to look at different arts to train in different styles 
you know, um, it might push you away completely. I don't know. Everyone's different. So, you know, for those people that are unfortunate enough to have that situation, or fortunate enough, it depends how you look at it. It depends on you as an individual, I suppose. That first real-life encounter where you're pressure-tested and you get to try those techniques is a real important turning point as well. And I guess if you if you end up becoming an instructor, you know, taking those first steps to teaching, um, you know, having those first students on your mats, your, your first students grade, your first students compete, you know, all of those all of those moments um, are really important. But yeah, you know, that you could pick it apart and, and, and go lots of different ways with this one, depending on what you teach, how you teach it, um, or, or what you train in and how you train it. So anyway, it's a good one. Okay, so next one is... Uh, I'm going to just read it through first. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to edit this one a little bit. So the question, well, the comment is, um, how self-defense has changed since the advent of the internet and phone cameras? Watched some real old-fashioned, I'm going to say rubbish, on here recently that would get you arrested. I, I, yeah, I think it's fair to say that... Um, when it comes to self-defense, now what I will say from the outset here is that I am not advocating myself as a as a self-defense expert. Um, yes, I teach martial arts, but I think it's important to understand that teaching martial arts and being a self-defense expert are very, very different things. Um, they're not, you know, you wouldn't swim up and down the swimming pool every day, you know, whatever many lengths you do, and then claim that you're a scuba diving expert. You know, they're not. Yes, they're both in water, but they're very different things. Um, I've had some encounters. I've had some experiences. Yes, I have, and I've been. I've, I've I've pressure tested in class situations as well. But I'm not somebody that's had lots and lots of experience on the doors or on the street or anything like that. But what I would say is looking in that this the advent of mobile phones and of CCTV being everywhere, absolutely everywhere. It's in, you know, obviously, you've got cameras in cars. You've got that. They're, they're, they're absolutely everywhere. You know, uh, shops now are even working together to put ring doorbells that are all connected to the same network, where they can all access them. So it's it's pretty much everywhere now. I mean, it's gonna. It's even in glasses now. You've got cameras are everywhere. Um, so it's very. It's really important. I feel anyway. You know, that creating a witness not being depending on the situation the person to uh, verbally escalate and instigate um you, it, there's there's so many things extra things that you you know gone are the days where you can just stick a punch on somebody uh, and it not be recorded anywhere so you've got to be really careful about thinking about when you stick that punch on somebody because it could be viewed in the wrong way you know especially if there's no audio on the camera um, so that I think it is really, really important to you know important to correct to, uh, to, sorry to create a witness. And if you don't know what I mean by that, you need to look it up. Um, you know things like taking the step back and lifting up your hands and just showing that passive stance, which can turn into a you know an offensive hit very, very quickly or a defensive hit very, very quickly. Um, but again, and, you know it, it depends on the situation as to what stance you would need to take and when I say stance I don't mean how you stand necessarily but how you position yourself and your general approach if it's an argument over a car parking space 
then you know you don't want to go swinging in. But if there's somebody there threatening to hurt you with with a with a weapon, you you know you don't hang around in those scenarios. You know you you take decisive action, regardless of what that action is. You know you you don't think about oh I better make sure that it looks like I'm not the aggressor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, and as for seeing some old fashioned bleep word, I'll say rubbish. Um, yeah, that that there there are still people out there that sort of maybe don't consider the the modern day situations and we've always taught it like this so this is how you should do it and I think personally that's dangerous I think you know part of self-defense is being able to keep yourself safe in a legal manner as well and um, understanding the law when it comes to self-defense is, is super important um, you know what rights you have as I say, I'm not a self-defense expert, but I make sure that I understand the definition of self-defense in UK law. And obviously, wherever you're listening from, you need to look it up and see what your local laws are. Um, but understanding that you have a basic right to life and a right to protect yourself and your property and that of your friends and their property, you know, where where it becomes a little bit blurred, you know, understanding it is a... You know, the, the the idea is I like to think of it as insurance. You know, knowing, understanding this stuff, so it's there if you need it, not so you have to use it every day. Just like insurance, right? Let's have a look. Next page. Um, okay. Next question. Uh, what drills and games are actually good for skill improvement, and which ones are just time fillers? <laughs> wow. Um, all right. This is. It's not a straight answer, is it? Um, okay, so games that I like to play, and what I will say is as well is games doesn't have to just be kids, because adults can benefit benefit from you know inverted commas playing in class just as much as kids. But drills that I like to do, okay, so footwork drills. We'll start at footwork drills. So um, I actually created a course on this over COVID for instructors that were struggling. It actually still exists. I might link it in this. I'll, I'll drop the price right down. Um, but there are some drills in there that are relevant to... I've just turned this into a pitch. There are drills in that course that are relevant to regular classes anyway. You just have to just take the whole uh, Zoom thing out and it, it still works. Anyway, uh, footwork drills. Um, so having your students stand in whatever stance you take out... Uh, sorry, take up for your, your art, um, which will involve moving, I would assume, unless you all stand still. And then practicing stepping drills. You know, front, back... Left, right, change, um, and and make it fun. So you, you you shout words that are nearly like the word. So instead of shouting change, you you, you shout whatever that sounds a little bit like that, um, and see who moves, who doesn't move. So the kids are, or the adults are having fun with it, but they're still they're working on their focusing and they're working on their stepping. Um, we'll sometimes have it so that the person that's last to move is out the game and keep going until there's one left. And sometimes let the instructors join in as well. So that the, the, in the case of the kids anyway, they're competing with the instructors to be faster than them, to be better than them. That's the drill that I like to use for footwork. Um, using hoops as well, um, or, or, or ladders, agility ladders. You know, playing games using those. Um, you just have to be creative in that sense. Uh, so throw and catch games is one I like to use using a beanbag. Uh, where your students stand opposite each other and you get them to pass the beanbag between each other in a with using a jab or a cross. So they're not like underarm throwing it or lobbing it at each other. They are actually using 
their movement associated with the jab or a cross. And then they're using either the same or the opposite to catch in one hand whilst working on their footwork and turning. So you have somebody that leads like a dance and somebody that follows um, whilst passing the beanbag and see how many, how, you know, how much of a rally you can get going so you don't drop it. Um, focus drill, that is a focus drills, but sort of reaction drills uh, is a game I like to play where we hold up a focus pad in front of the student. This is good for the younger ones. And you drop it, and they have to time the jab or the cross or whatever technique. I wouldn't do kicks. You end up lobbing them across the room like a drop kick. But um, you you ask them to, to, to punch the pad as it's dropping in front of them um, and see how far they can hit it. That's one that the, the younger kids absolutely love that. Um, now, which ones are time fillers? I mean, sometimes you need a time filler. Um, as long as you can put something into context i mean i do sometimes see people playing games and i think you know you you, you're just having the kids play dodgeball for 10 minutes because you can't be bothered to do something with them Uh, i'm not saying that playing dodgeball is necessarily a bad thing because it is working on some skills that you could connect to martial arts but sometimes i think it's just lobbed in no pun intended as a means to just go oh i don't have to do the last five ten minutes of a little more run around and chuck a ball at each other um it sends them out a little bit hyper if you're not careful with that one. Um, oh, a cool game, a fun game I like to play. Chop up some lengths of old belt um, and stick them in the back of your student's belt. And this is good for the younger ones that haven't had much sparring ex- experience before. And they either both have a belt or just one has a belt and they have to they have to pull the belt from the back so there's like a little tail in the back of their belt. Um and it just gets them thinking about body positioning and turning and it actually gets them making contact in a fun way that they're not overly stressed about um it, you know because the the grabbing trying to get the belt and they're pushing them away and it, it, they love that game anyway i could go on for hours about this one but as i said i'll link in the um the show notes to the course that i made i'll i'll drop the price right down um if it's of help to somebody because I don't know, there's about 50 or so drills in there. Some of them are very, very COVID-Zoom-related, like Zoom related, but some of them do translate into classes, especially if you're doing any one-to-ones or small group sessions, um, and even big classes, because they, I, I still use some of them now, actually. Anyway, next one. Um, okay, so what advice would you give teenager Chris starting out in martial arts if you could go back in time? Uh, take up a different sport is not an option. <laughs> um, okay, so this is I have to apply a little bit of make-believe because I actually started before I was a teen. Um, so let's pretend that I didn't start sort of eight, age eight, nine. Um, let's say I was 13. I did actually take a little bit of a break and come back again. What advice would I give myself back then? Um, I don't know because I... I was there all the time. I was there every day. I absolutely loved it. And I wouldn't want to tell myself not to do that. Because I would have only have been doing something else much less productive. Um, definitely for, for a fact. I think I probably would have told younger me just to relax a little bit more. Um... Maybe not take it quite so seriously, especially when I was in my later teens. I think I maybe took it a little bit too serious at times. Um, which again, I don't know, is is that a negative or not? I don't, I don't really know. I'm a lot more chilled out now. Obviously, I'm 44, so you know, 
<laughs> there are plenty of people that age that aren't chilled out, but um, I did take it very seriously. Um, what advice? It's a hard to difficult one, this. What advice would I give myself? I think I would probably say to read up more and probably open myself up to more training styles which is you know when you're so into what you're doing at that age it's it's difficult and it's, it's not like you can just you know 14 15 just go oh I'm off to train here and do that you know it's not always an option it certainly wasn't for me because there weren't really, really that many other clubs doing different things to be fair um but yeah I think it would be just to sort of chill out a little bit and maybe not take it quite so seriously and maybe make room for other things other activities um definitely work more on my technique and flexibility because I was fairly flexible and I, and my technique wasn't crap by any means but it wasn't until I would say into my 20s um, when I really started focusing on you know biomechanics and alignment and everything and if I'd have started on that earlier I dare say I probably would be even more well, I would have been better now. I would be, without a doubt. I think I've saved myself from the inevitable, touch wood, hip operations and stuff. I've, I know I've had a knee surgery a couple of times, but both of those instances were unrelated to martial arts, ironically. Um, and I put that down to, oh, actually, one thing I would say is <laughs> be brave and question your instructor about some of the dodgy stretching and and conditioning drills that we're doing because we used to do some stupid stuff. I mean, I dare say I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't dare. Young me wouldn't dare question it. But we 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 did some utterly, you know, grown men jumping on our legs, stretching, and you know, and and, and all sorts of crazy stuff that I've talked about before. Um, anyway, yeah, that's that. This is a tricky question to answer. Look at you, read it and go, well, oh yeah, easy. I give. I tell myself this or that, but I actually, don't know what I would. Okay, next question. Oh, this is a big one. I can see this is going to be a tricky one. Um, should there be one overall governing body that regulates and polices syllabus policies and standards within martial arts or sub-associations that manage and police the various disciplines, for example, karate, kickboxing, jiu-jitsu, then reports in directly to the overall lead governing body? Crikey, blimey. Um, right, so let's try and break that down into bits. Sorry, that's my phone. Um, right, should there be one overall governing body that regulates and polices syllabus and policies and standards within martial arts clubs? Um, should there be a governing body that polices syllabus? No. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think syllabus isn't really an issue here. Um, because I, 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 I don't, it's a really slippery slope that when you start dictating what people should teach, I think there should be people. I think there should be. Um, I think the more important thing here is checking an instructor's suitability or eligibility to teach, because what people teach is incredibly subjective. Um, and everybody's got an opinion on what everybody else teaches and whether it's suitable or whether it's right, and that's based on individual opinion. Um, and I don't think that's something that 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 should start being um, fiddled with because everybody is teaching based on their life experience, of which everybody has different experience. 
Um, you know, obviously there are there are systems that are created, there are syllabuses that are created within Unix systems. But I'm I don't think I'm going out on a limb here when I say that even if all right, let's say ITF Taekwondo. I don't think all instructors, well, I know from experience that not all ITF instructors are teaching ITF Taekwondo the same. They're just not. They've all got a little bit of like what I like to call regional variance. You know, you travel up and down the country and go between club and club, and everybody's doing it slightly different. And I don't think that's something that needs to be fiddled with because that's just born out of individual experience. Um, now, the standards... I think the standards again falls into syllabus I, I mean would we like to see standards improved in some schools yes but I think the more important thing here is you know is the instructor first aid trained have they had safeguarding training are they insured are they DBS checked I think those things more than what it is that they are teaching are more important um, if students are getting a positive experience out of what it is that they're being taught, then that is that's it. That's the you know that's what it is, isn't it? But if the, the instructors are dodgy thing up to no good, then or teaching stuff that's that, you know dangerous from a biomechanical perspective, then that I think needs some questioning. But then again, that would come down to correct teaching um, and coaching. Um, so I think I, I mean I've long championed the idea of something of an MOT like an instructor MOT whereas you know whether it's every three years whatever somebody you know we all, we all have to go on a, on a day course somewhere um, and be subject to questions but you know uh, you know this in this scenario um, Billy's fallen now Billy's taken a, a, a bash to the head a topical one at the moment. What are your concussion protocols? What would you do in this situation? <clears throat> I, I don't think that's something that's, especially given what it is that we do, that that, that should be, people should turn their nose up at. Um, where in the situation where an instructor might not physically be able to perform techniques anymore, I don't think that should remove their right to be a coach or an instructor, but they should be able to correctly explain and, and vocalise the processes that people need to go through safely to train and, and perform those techniques. And I don't think that being questioned, because let's be honest, we see some absolute garbage, you know, especially with the advent of the internet. And it's dangerous. Some of the, I'm not saying what the, the application of it, whether it would work or not work. I mean, biomechanically, it's dangerous. They're, they're, they're damaging their students the way that they're, they're asking them to perform it and teach it. And, sorry, and train it. Um, and obviously the way they're teaching it too. But I think that sort of stuff should get picked up on. Um, whether you call it a, a step psychic or a flying thrusting dragon kick is completely irrelevant. But biomechanically, is it safe? You know, are, are, Is what you're teaching and telling your students to do damaging their hips and ligaments and joints and soft tissue and you know connective tissues? You know, is that is that damaging? That sort of stuff. I should. I think should be but then how do you do that how do you go about doing that that's a difficult thing um let's have a look here uh sub associations that manage and police the various disciplines for example and then report directly to i think it's just complicating it having it having too many voices going on um for me the single most important thing 
is that there are there is a there is somebody in place or a group in place handing down on a very basic level requirements and policies telling us that you need to be insured you need to be first aid trained you need to have safeguarding training you need a dbs in place there's a minimum there needs to be a minimum standard coaching qualification too because being a black belt does not make you an instructor and i'm speaking from experience here young black belt chris going from black belt to being thrown in front of a class and teaching you know you know i had somebody with me when i first started out but i learned on the job it was very much a um, trial by fire I would have benefited from some coaching qualifications. Now there wasn't, there wasn't probably wasn't such a thing back then, and I know there aren't. Even though the government seems to think there is, there isn't a, such a thing as a martial arts coaching qualification that you can go and do at college. But one could be created very easily. And I know that there are people out there that are pushing certain, you know, set those sorts of things. But it should be a prerequisite. It should be a, a minimum standard. So there should be a. a an overarching umbrella group that checks the very basics doesn't check you know what style we were teaching but you know have you got tick box insurance dbs safeguarding first aid training etc etc and you have to be able to prove and then it goes on a register that any public register that anyone can access i've been on a rant about this before but why is it the bloke literally around the corner from where i am now that I believe is teaching absolute nonsense. I can't find out anything about him, but I can find out exactly what my next-door neighbour's car failed on on its MOT. I'm not saying it did, but if it did, I could find out. I could find out if it's got an MOT. I can find out if it's got tax. you know. And you can find that out for free. Why is it that, as instructors, we're not subject to that same level of scrutiny on a public level? We're working with kids and vulnerable people. People should be able to go on a register and find out details about us. Because I dare say that would straight away turn away those people that are you know, up to no good. They, if they know that they're going to get checked up on, they would more than likely not look at martial arts or any coaching with kids so means as an access to them to do you know unpleasant stuff anyway let me see let me let's just look at the last bit of this question too many associations too many different rules but there aren't really rules are they that's the thing there aren't i mean i i've never joined an association or a, a governing body before and had them turn around and go this is what you have to do this is what you can't do that, that, that's never happened um anyway moving on I think this is the last one. Oh, this is a multifaceted one. This is this is a question with lots of questions. Um, training up students to be instructors, spotting the right someone, nurturing the right people. How much responsibility do you give them from day one? Hiring from outside. Okay, so um, oh, uh, coaching teams. So um, I've spoken on this one before on the podcast. Um, I came up through an instructor training program. And I've I've brought instructors into my school before, and I've trained instructors up within my school before. So I've kind of done all of those. I wouldn't say I'm the world's greatest at it by any stretch, um, but I have had experience. So I'll I'll speak from my own experience. Um, training up students to be instructors and spotting the right someone. I think the spotting the right someone bit is fairly straightforward because. 
especially with your younger students, the ones that are always there, the ones that are keen, the ones that are polite and helpful, the ones that are always providing answers to questions when you ask them to the class, they're not afraid to speak in front of the class. Those are the ones that are, I think, are the, 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 the great stepping stone students for, first of all, helping out. Now, for me, what I do... Um, I ask them usually to pick a class that runs before theirs. Obviously, you're all in different situations with your schools, but with mine, they all the classes run back to back in the evenings. So, um, and they typically increase. So the younger ones and the lower grades are earlier on, and then the higher grades and the older ones are later in the evening. So, with the older ones, the higher grades, I ask them if they'd like to, if they express an interest, or maybe I say to them, "Have you ever thought about this?" I ask them to help out in the class before and initially. All that's involved in that is them being there to make up numbers. If it's an odd-numbered class, if they're confident in it, maybe tying a belt if it falls off. If the pads are a mess, maybe go and tidy up the pads. If any of the kids are struggling putting on sparring kit or holding focus pads, showing them how to do it. So real basic stuff. And then with time, as they get older and as they become more confident allowing them to work maybe on a one-to-one basis. So let's say you've got a class of 10 or whatever, and one of the kids is struggling a little bit, and you can say, hey, Bobby, go and stand over there with, with, with Sarah, I'm going to make a name up, Sarah, and, and help them out with their drill that they're doing, whatever it is. And they're sort of shadowing and helping them out a little bit. So it allows them to build the confidence in vocalising the, the syllabus. and Because and, we all know there's no better test of your knowledge of syllabus than having to communicate it. It's all well and good standing in front of everybody and do it, but the minute you have to communicate it, that's where you're, it's a real test of your of your ability to, to I won't say teach, but to sort of vocalise it. Um, and then the next step up from there is we perhaps let them teach a small section, so something they're super confident on, with you over, obviously looking over as well. You're not leaving them unsupervised. Um, maybe a hand drill or a, you know, something real simple. Uh, and then maybe assisting with a warm-up. So it's stepping, it's progressive. You don't just chuck them in. I had that happen to me, and it was terrifying. I was just thrown in a class, and, and I, I was there every day, and I was in classes, but being asked to teach one? My goodness me, that it, it threw me for six. I didn't have a clue. And I'm thinking, I'm here every day. How do I, know, how do I not know what to do? Um, and it was terrifying. And I remember being asked to teach, I was like, I was told, you're doing the warm-up next week. And that week was awful. And it was just a warm-up. But it was dreadful. And that week, so, I remember being so stressed. So for me, it's always about taking steps and looking at the students going, they are not going to be comfortable doing any more than this. And then leaving them at that level. It's okay to leave them at that level. Um. So that I suppose that is the nurturing and how much responsibility you give them from day one. Hand from outside your club to each your own. I I won't ever do that again. I have done it before, and it was a disaster because for me anyway. When you hire in from outside, and I've done this on more than one occasion, so nobody can say, "Hey, you're talking about this person or that person," because I've done this more than once. And in my situation, one particular person that I hired in, um, look, I think the thing you've got to keep in mind is 
when you're hiring somebody in to teach in your school, their highest priority isn't your students. It's themselves. It's it's their job. When you when you nurture from within your club, your students are all about your school. So their priority is your school and your students, not necessarily just themselves. When you bring somebody in, it's just a job. They don't care about the history or they don't they just, they just don't because they've not come up through it. They don't have any understanding of of how the schools developed or the students or anything that they're, they're literally just doing a job and that can come with i'm not saying well, it certainly hasn't happened with me it's not that everybody's done this but i have had people come in plan to leave and take students and open up clubs and it's an absolute nightmare to come to to, to keep on top of because you can't stop them from doing that. And it's not to say that students from within your club won't necessarily do that as well, but I just think the it's just more likely when you hire in. Um, because, as I say, your your school and your background, your ethics, your teaching, it's not it's not their priority. Um, so I, I just think it's one that you have to be super, super careful of. I mean, I'm not saying that they're all going to do that. And in my case, not everybody did that. But I definitely had that happen. Um, to a certain degree more than once but definitely once very very definitely um, and so I won't make that mistake again I'll, I'll not bring instructors in from, from, from outside my school and then you've got the minefield as well of knowing their history of, not, of knowing you know have they done this before have they bounced around other clubs before and short of going around asking everybody how would you even know Um yeah, it's not an absolute no, but you, I just think you've got to be super, super careful on that one. Right, let me just have a quick nosy through these bits of paper just to make sure that I didn't actually miss any. Um, I did actually. Hang on, there's one here. Ooh, it's a big one to close on. What part of martial arts does the original culture and its philosophy play? Whew. I mean, that is a... That is a big one to unpack. And sorry if you can hear the washing machine in the background. Um, so, wow. I mean, it depends on what you teach. I've, and I've said this before already, but if you teach... I mean, that, even that's going to have a culture, though, but does it have an original culture? If you're teaching a sports system, a modern sports system, or a, or a modern art that doesn't really have a history beyond yourself... Does that have original culture and philosophy? I, I don't think it necessarily does. But, and, I, and I've seen people arguing about this before on, on the internet, on Facebook especially, uh, about the, the, the pointless elements of, of, of original culture and, and philosophy within traditional arts. There are elements that I think are important. Um, respect. Um, definitely showing respect to instructors. Uh, for example, I'm one thing that I'm super keen on um, is showing respect and being on time. Um, it, it, you, being on time is being early, <laughs> essentially. Don't turn up to class late. It's disrespectful to your instructors, to your fellow students, and to yourself. 
You owe it to yourself to be on time. Um, as an instructor, I won't take in other other instructor students unless it's been discussed prior between myself and the other instructor. Um, or you know, there are too many times where I'll get an email through. Oh, we're training at so and so place, and we're not happy, and we want to move, but we've still got a membership, and it lasts another six months, and we don't want to. It's like, well, no, I don't. I, I'm not. I'm not taking in somebody else's student. And I know for sure that not all the other local schools around me do this because I've seen them. I've seen them taking in my students before when I knew full well they were still training with me. To each their own. And I think it depends on what it is that you're, you know, it it, it depends on what it is that you're doing as well, I guess. But I, I just don't want to get involved with other people's students and start muddying their learning because if your instructor's teaching you one way and I'm teaching you another way, that they're just that it's just going to cause confusion, um, and I just think it's. I, I had an, I had a, like, I had a student that wanted to try out some different arts, and I made a point of contacting all the coaches of all the other schools to say, look, this is going to sound a bit weird potentially, but this student of mine wants to try your style. Would you be okay if I brought them to 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 try it, just so that it's clear that we're not on some sort of undercover spying session or something but i just think that basic level of respect between instructors it's being eroded with time especially as business takes precedence really um i know that i have refused to allow students to try my classes from other schools and that those schools haven't reciprocated that and they have allowed my students to try their classes and i know for for a fact it's 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 not hard to find out um and I, and I just don't like that sort of stuff. Now you might think, well, that's stupid, but that's just my, they're my values, and they are things that I've had passed down to me from from my instructors as a child. And um, I don't think it's necessarily a right or wrong thing, but I think what it is is me trying to do something out of a place of being respectful. So I, I think that's a core value that is important. So what part of martial arts do the original culture and philosophies play? I, I think um, being respectful of, of of other people, of other instructors, of other arts, of other systems is super important. And that is, with, with the advent of social media and the internet especially, they are slowly being eroded. Now, as I say, it's all very subjective because it does depend on how you teach and what you teach. But for those that do teach traditional arts with elements of traditional philosophy, then or or philosophy in general, I think it does have an important place for those students and for those instructors. But I don't think it's the be all and end all. I think it is. If you're trying to, if you're doing something from a place of honesty and you're trying to be right, I think that is first and foremost the most important things. And as long as you're not encouraging your students to be absolute asshats, then you know uh, that is that is important. That is probably the most important thing, right? I think I think that's everything. That is fifty minutes worth. Crikey, blimey! I mean, I know obviously I like to talk, but. <laughs> It's nice to offload, actually, because it's good. You know, it's good. It gets me thinking about things and hopefully challenges ideas. And especially in the cases where what I say maybe you don't agree with. You know, that's not right, wrong. It's just different. Um, 
because we're all on different journeys with this martial arts thing, aren't we? Um, but anyway, in some news, some news, some of you may have seen on the Facebooks um, that in September, the 21st to be exact, I am going to be at the Southwest Martial Arts Show doing a spot of in-person presenting and interviewing. Now, I suppose to a certain degree, it's the next logical step from doing 120-something podcasts is to do this in person. So if you're there at the show, if you're going to be at the Southwest show, um, you'll be able to listen to me most of the day pretty much doing an in-person podcast. We haven't finalised all the details yet, but... and I, I, Well, I won't say what I was about to say because I don't think it's been announced yet, but... <laughs> um, it, it would be nice, this this is all right to say, um, it would be nice to try and do a bit of the podcast there, live, in person, if possible, if there's a way to do it. Um, I'm not sure how, but recording a live podcast would be pretty cool. It's something that I've toyed with for a while. Um, and I might try and arrange something. I keep you guys in the loop. But yeah, basically, um, I'm going to be at the show. I'm going to be interviewing guests on the stage. I'm going to be um, doing other bits of presenting and talking and stuff as well, no doubt. And I'll just be there generally as well as a guest. So, you know, if you're a listener of the show or or we've met before and you want to just come and say hi and stuff, you know, that's, that'd be cool. It'd be nice to see people, get some photos and stuff for the, for the Facebook page. Um, and just obviously share the, you know, share what we do as a podcast as well. I think it's going to be, it's going to be cool. My first official engagement as a speaker and a, and a, a presenter at a show through the podcast. I think that's, you know, as I say, it's next le- next logical step. But yeah, it is cool to think. You know, from starting out 120 summer episodes ago to actually doing it as a job in person, pretty cool. Um, and I don't like to talk, obviously, as well. Uh, but yeah, a little bit of other housekeeping before I finish up. Um, thank you to everybody that has supported the show via um, the links on the website. So you've used the, the Mitmaster banner. Uh, so the, all the links are at kickbackpodcast.com. If you use the banner links to purchase your Mitmaster and your Art Marshall gear, um, we get a, a small percentage back of those sales. It doesn't cost you a penny more. Um, thank you to all the people that have done that recently. Um, it really does help, guys. You know, a, a tenner here and there, it, it, it makes a difference. It really, really does um, because the costs are only going up. I actually bought a new microphone that I'm using right now, albeit secondhand in a charity shop, and I'm actually a bloody good bargain it was. But I bought that with funds that were raised through people buying stuff through Mitmaster and through Art Marshall. So thank you to people that have done that. Um, support our friends over at Martialytics as well. I use their CRM system for my martial arts school every single day. Well, six days a week anyway. And it's a bloody good system. Um, you can do a two-week trial. If you're a little bit unorganized or everything's still on bits of paper, you might want to look at modernizing stuff for data protection, if nothing else. Um, so go and have a look at that, uh, martialytics.com. Um, and finally, um, for our people further afield, and actually from the UK as well, uh, I've done a deal with Century Martial Arts Europe. If you use the promo code CHRIS10 at checkout, you can save yourself 10%, um, which if you're buying you know, bigger bits of kit, is a pretty hefty saving. Um, so go check that out. Yeah, uh, Century Martial Arts Europe, use the promo code CHRIS10 to save pe- 10% on all of your purchases. So yes, thank you guys. I've enjoyed sitting down doing this. Um, I've managed to avoid the doorbell ringing and the phone ringing 
and I don't think the washing machine was too loud. So, yeah. Um, I'll be back next week with Matt Chapman. We're actually having a break this week from our Talk Bollocks Tuesday uh, Matt Chat episodes, but we will be back next week. Um, I'd like to say that this one was recorded in place of it and it was all fully organised, but it wasn't. It's just just kind of how it's landed, I'll be honest. Um, but we will be back next week for a full episode. Anyway, guys, thanks again. Um, thank you for the questions, for those people that submitted them, and I look forward to doing this again. I don't know when. We'll do it again soon. Cheers, guys. Brought to you by Martialytics. Easy to use. Super powerful management software for your martial arts school.